We are in this road trip through the Epistle of Paul to the church in Rome in a message series called Foundations. In chapter 7, Paul walked us through the, the function of the law, addressing the questions that could potentially arise regarding the role of rules. Questions like, well, maybe the problem is I need more rules in my life. And from there, he went to, well, maybe the the rules themselves are the problem. And then he went on to, well, maybe I'm the problem. And Paul spoke to his own struggle with sin and our struggle with sin. And he finally cried out in desperation, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answered the question in verse 25 of chapter 7. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He looked outside of himself beyond the law, to Jesus Christ as his deliverer. But in chapter 8, Paul moved on to talk about the Holy Spirit as our enabler. Jesus is our deliverer. The Holy Spirit is our enabler. And in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8, we both, we both answered questions and we asked questions. We answered questions about the Holy Spirit and we asked questions For you to write down, for you to reflect upon and prayerfully consider in order to allow the Lord to bring about greater freedom and fulfillment in your life as you live life by the Spirit, living life in the Spirit. And hopefully you've done that over the last week. If you missed last week, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that message or watch it online because those are some foundational things in that particular section of Scripture. We saw that There is freedom from condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw that there is freedom from the power of sin. Because the Holy Spirit is in you and wants to continually fill you so that you live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that there is freedom from the fear of abandonment. Because he is your father, your Abba Father in heaven. And that means you are his child if you have trusted in him. And now we will continue to talk about the freedom and fulfillment that we have in the Holy Spirit and how we are enabled to live as overcomers and conquerors. First, life in the Spirit means living as an overcomer. Living as an overcomer, beginning in verse 18, let's read through verse 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now Paul starts off there in verse 18 saying that he's been thinking. That's the word that translate, it's translated consider there in verse 18. It means, it means to think. Now what is it that he's been thinking so much about? Two things. Look again at verse 18. He was thinking about the sufferings of this present time. And he was thinking about the glory which should be revealed in us. This coming glory will not only be revealed to us, it is going to actually be revealed in us. God has put this glory into believers right now. But when we're in heaven, 
this glory will be revealed. And we are overcomers as we endure suffering in the hope of this future glory. As you look back over the last year, let's say the last 15 months, how many of you, how many of you would say that this last year was a rough year for you? I mean, I would, for me, it was rough in many, many ways. There were many difficulties. And maybe you would say that, yeah, it wasn't the best year for me either. And as you think about this last year, what it was like for you, maybe it was a great year. And for some people, it, it was in many ways. But others, the, the, there's other times in your life where you would say that you've struggled, that you've suffered in various ways, or where things have not gone the way that you would hope that they would go. Well, Paul is thinking about those kinds of things, and he has in mind one of those old scales, the, the, old, the horizontal beam and, and the fulcrum in the center where you had, it goes out in both ways, and you have the pans on both sides so that you put something in the one side of the pan and, and it tilts this way versus the other way, and you compare the weight of those two things. That's what the word worthy refers to, a balance scale. The comparison between the weight of one thing and the weight of another thing. And Paul is saying, if you could take the sufferings of this life and put it all on one side of the scale and just start stacking those things up one after the other, all of those sufferings, those difficulties in life, well, that pan would obviously start to drop down all the way down from the weight of those things. And Paul continues the idea in looking at the weight of everything and thinking about everything I've suffered and I've been through, after thinking about that for a long time, considering those things, I've concluded that when this life is over, when God places in that other pan all of the glory, all of the future glory that, that's ahead for me, all of the, in the eternity, eternity future, that side is going to immediately go down and raise this other side up. All those things that seem so heavy will go up like this, and all of the eternal weight and glory outweighs these things. That's what he's saying. They will, it'll be as if they weighed nothing at all. What an encouraging picture to consider, to think about. Maybe you're going through difficult times right now, and when we are in the middle of whatever it is we're going through, we can never lose sight of what will be, what is in the future, because what will be is going to be amazing. Now, speaking of pictures or images being painted to illustrate a point, Paul now personifies creation. He talks about how creation groans there in verse 19. Look again at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The word that's translated earnest expectation, it means to stretch your neck. It's like you're straining. It's thrusting your head forward. You're just so totally engaged in, in that you're looking for something. You're waiting for something. That's what that word means. That's what creation has. Creation has this earnest expectation. But what about what creation does? Creation eagerly Oh, eager, eagerly waits. That's what it does. It's eagerly waiting. I know that sounds kind of like an oxymoron. How do you wait? Waiting seems so passive, but to do it eagerly. It's eagerly waiting. And what is, what is, it, what is it that creation is waiting for? Well, in verse 19, it's waiting for the revealing 
of the sons of God. The same thing that was translated in the previous verse as the glory which shall be revealed in us. So as Paul goes on to write more about creation, he writes about creation's past, present, and future. Let's look at creation past. Again, verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to ho- in hope. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall of humanity. And we, ha- we have the consequences of the fall given to us as well. You know, Eve ate the fruit, she gave it to Adam, he ate the fruit, and there were consequences. And in Genesis chapter 3, God begins to talk with Adam and Eve about the consequences of their sin. Those consequences are referred to as the curse. It's been referred to as the curse. And among other things, God cursed the ground. In, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Now, hopefully you can track with me here as we kind of review some things that happened in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says that God made plants out of the ground. You see that phrase over and over again, out of the ground. The word ground, the Hebrew word is adama, A-D-A-M-A-H, adama. In Genesis 2.19, it says that God made animals, adama, out of the ground. In Genesis 2.7, it says that God made people out of the dust or out of the ground, adama. And the name Adam sounds a lot like that Hebrew word, adama, and it should, as Adam was made out of the ground, in the Hebrew, Adam. And again, the word for the, of, of the ground, Adama. So I want you to see the association between those things, because in Genesis 3.17, when it says that God spoke and, and said, cursed is the ground, he wasn't just saying that it was going to be difficult for Adam to grow food and to make a living, but he was speaking of a curse on the ground itself, the elements themselves, the very thing from which God created everything else, that there was a curse on it. And so the results of this curse on creation is in a word, well, the, the word Paul chose is the word futility, which in, it speaks of emptiness. So if there is this futility, this emptiness about creation, and it sounds like there's no hope, well, we get new hope in verse 21 back here in Romans chapter 8, where it speaks about creation's future. Read again verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So creation is to be delivered from something and into something. It's to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. When we look at the universe around us, we see that things are running down. We call it the the principle, we call it entropy. Sometimes you read about, you see some article, well, the sun's going to burn up in X number of thousands or millions or years. You know, there's always some date. Or in so many years, a meteor is going to hit the earth. You read about these kinds of things, and you wonder, well, how long is it going to be before that happens? But there's this law of entropy, or also called the second law of thermodynamics. There are several ways that it gets expressed, but the idea is that things run from order to disorder. Uh, which is the opposite of evolution, which says things go from disorder and somehow became order. So creation is to be delivered from the bondage of corruption, from decay, from entropy, but it is to be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
So creation's future is very much linked to our future as God's children. It's kind of an amazing thing, but at the time of the second coming, earth is going to get a complete makeover, a complete redo. There's probably a lot of you, you love nature, you love going outside, you being involved in outdoor activities. Uh, my wife and I are looking forward to, we're going to be going to the mountains, doing some hiking, being in, in the outdoors. We love doing that kind of thing, and many of you do as well. But as it is right now, nothing in creation is the way it was then, before the fall. Nothing in creation was the way it was, was then. And nothing in creation is the way it was supposed to be. So imagine how much better it was even then, before all of this. And then imagine how much better it's going to be in that one day when it gets redone. If at the second coming, earth gets a complete makeover, and then the Bible says that a thousand years later, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. That's going to be amazing. But what about creation's present? What's happening now? Well, we saw in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When you look at the weather and and notice weather patterns, you know, last was it last weekend, I believe, watching the track and field Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon, Pacific Northwest, way up there. It was 110 degrees. Uh, they had to postpone the, the events, many of the events that were finals, because it was 100 degrees, 110 degrees air temperature. On the track, it was up to 150 degrees. We're in Texas, and that's a lot, right? <laughs> that's in Oregon. So they're having record heat waves up in the Pacific Northwest. And you just wonder, when you see things like that, you know, why, do the, why is that happening? Much less you think things like hurricanes, there's so many hurricanes, or tsunamis, or tornadoes, or earthquakes, or whatever it is. Why does all that happen? It happens because Earth, and I know the scientists come up with different reasons and philosophies, but the thing is, Earth, creation itself, is in labor waiting for this delivery. The earth is going through labor. Now, it's amazing these days with all the uh, technological advances that if you're, if you're pregnant, you're having a baby. You know, it isn't like when, when my wife was pregnant with our two kids who are now 23 and 26, I think, or about to be 26. Um, you know, we got these grainy photos of the baby pictures after the sonogram, it was like this grainy photo. It wasn't even on good paper. It was like this bad paper of the baby in the womb, and you're supposed to make some sense of it. But now you get, it's like all HD quality digital photos and probably videos that you get now that are like amazing quality. And then after the birth of the baby, you know, people are sending photos or sharing photos on social media, and it's a cute picture of the baby, then there's the the picture of mom with the baby, and then maybe dad's on the side looking on. You you get those pictures, but you never see any pictures of the mom in labor. You ever wonder why that is? You, You don't want to see it. She doesn't want you to see it, but we don't want to see it either. It's not a pretty picture. And when you look at planet Earth, and you see these things happening, 
you are seeing the planet in labor, and it's not always a pretty picture. And right now, at creation's present, creation groans. That's what he's saying. But guess what? We also groan. That's what he says next, that believers groan, verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, as we begin this section, I want to review a few terms that we've learned along the way in our study of the book of Romans. So just by a quick review, the first word is that word justification. Justification is that moment when a person trusts in Christ to forgive them and to lead them. And God gifts us with righteousness. He gifts that to us. At the moment I trusted Jesus, God gifted me a righteousness or a righteous status with him, a right standing, a right relationship with him. That is justification. Then we talked about sanctification. Sanctification begins at the moment of justification, but it continues throughout the rest of our lives. And in sanctification, the Holy Spirit is working from the inside out, transforming our lives to reproduce the character of Christ in us, growing us in that we are more Christ-like. And over time, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. But it's a lifelong process, and it's not finished in this life. And that leads to the third word, glorification, and that's especially relevant to these verses Glorification is when this life is over, when I've left for eternity, and when we're, when we're glorified, we will receive a glorified body because this body will be resurrected and made new. And we will see God face to face, and we will be morally perfected. So yeah, that doesn't happen in this life, but that's at glorification when this life is over. So justification, the moment we trusted Jesus sanctification from that point on through the rest of our lives, and then glorification when this life is over. And as part of glorification, our body is to be glorified, transformed, or as it says in verse 23, to be redeemed. Now, how do we know that that's all going to happen? It says here that it's going to happen. But how do we know? How do we know it's true? Because God put down a deposit. God put earnest money down. He put down a deposit, and he's going to redeem our bodies, and our bodies are going to be glorified because he's given us a deposit. He's given us a guarantee in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what we read about. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says that God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And a few chapters later, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, it says more or less the same thing, that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's only one other time in the New Testament that the word translated guarantee is used. And that's in Ephesians 1, verse 13, where he says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. 
Now, if you lived in if you lived in Greece today, or and you could speak Greek, the word translated guarantee is the word that they use for an engagement ring. Whenever there is an engagement ring, the idea is that there has been a proposal made, and that that other person has said yes, and so that ring is then placed on their finger, and that ring says, I'm going to do what I have committed to do. This is a token of my love and my commitment, and this promise made is a promise kept. And that's what it is when God gives us the Holy Spirit. The moment I was justified, when I trusted Jesus and was gifted with righteousness, at that moment, like an engagement ring slid on the finger the Holy Spirit began to indwell me, and if you're a follower of Christ, he began to indwell you, deposited in you. And in verse 23, we have this reference to the first fruits of the Spirit. And the idea is like if you're a farmer, and it's harvest season, or harvest season's coming, and there would be these very, very first fruits that could be harvested, even before the majority of the rest of the harvest the Holy Spirit is like that. The Holy Spirit in your life is a, a little taste of the glory that lies ahead in the future. So it says that like creation, we eagerly wait. It says it twice there, verse 23 and verse 25. We eagerly wait for God to finish what he started, for God to complete the adoption process with our glorification. You know, last week, uh, we talked back in this, uh, verse 15, it says that we were adopted, and we know that we're born into God's family when we're born again. But the reason it says we're adopted is because in Greek and Roman culture in the first century, when you adopted someone, you might choose someone to be your heir. You would choose them to be your heir, and as you adopted them, you immediately gave them a standing as an adult son or daughter with all of the privileges and all the responsibilities that go along with that. So in that sense, we have been adopted, we've been made adult children of God with all the privileges and responsibilities, but we're still waiting for our full inheritance. Peter describes that full inheritance in uh, 1 Peter 1.4 as uh, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. That is our hope. That is our hope. In fact, in verses 24 and 25, it talks over and over again about hope. We see the word five times, and we need hope. Hope is the idea that we know for sure because God has promised that things are going to get so much better. God is faithful to his word. And this promised glory will be a reality. That is our hope. So we've talked about how creation groans and how we groan as believers, but the Holy Spirit also groans. Look at verse 25, or excuse me, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, what weaknesses does Paul have in mind when he says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses? I believe he's referring to our weakness in prayer, how we can struggle to pray. A lot of times, I think we can overcomplicate prayer. Prayer is simply a conversation. If you can have a conversation with someone, you are capable of praying. It's having a conversation with God. Now, some people struggle with prayer not because they don't know or they don't have anything to say to God. It isn't that we don't know what we should pray for. We don't always know what to pray or how to pray it. I mean, I can name several things that I know I need to pray for. But that's not the same thing as knowing what I should specifically ask God for or how to ask it. To ask God to do what I should ask him to show me with regard to each thing. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. We need the Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts and upon our minds the specific things to pray. And a lot of times that doesn't happen until you just start praying. It's like as you start your conversation with God, as you're praying, and then the Holy Spirit prompts you to pray more specifically about that certain thing. And one of, the, one of the mistakes that we make in this regard is when we're suffering, and that's the context that Paul, Paul began with. He's in the context of suffering, that when we're suffering, what we usually pray is, God, how can I get out of this? But the Holy, Spirit's, it, it, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray, what can I get out of this? God isn't always going to get us out of our situation but he wants to teach us something while we're in it. To see an opportunity to learn new things about God and have new experiences with God as you go through them. To have an increased capacity to share God with others because of what you've gone through. So the Holy Spirit helps us in that way. Now, who do you pray for? Likely you you pray for your loved ones, your family, your friends, for each other, for people in the church, for other people. There's others that you pray for. Who prays for you? Hopefully you have someone who is praying for you. And it does feel good, you know, like when you, someone comes up and says, you know what, you've been on my mind this week. I've been praying for you all week. I've prayed for you several times. And, and that feels good. That's so comforting to hear that. Especially if it's out of the blue, like, oh, wow, God must have put that on your heart because I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't ask for that. But as great as that is, it tells us here that the Holy Spirit himself is praying for us. It says, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. Verse 26, the indwelling Spirit of God is praying for you. That's unbelievable. So he helps us to pray But not only that, he helps us by praying. He prays with us and he prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now groanings, it means wordless but not meaningless. There is meaning behind that. And the help that the Holy Spirit brings to express our groanings which cannot be uttered, it may include what the Bible refers to as the spiritual gift of tongues. And it's spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapters 14 and 15. 
But it's, not certainly, it's certainly not limited to that, to praying in an unknown tongue. The idea is of communication beyond our ability to express ourselves. It's deep groanings within us which can't be articulated apart from the interceding, or the interceding work of the Holy Spirit, and which is the purpose of the gift of tongues. It's not for any other purpose but to enable us to communicate with God in a way that isn't limited by our own knowledge or our own ability to articulate our heart to God. So that's the purpose of that. Now, we talked earlier about creation groaning and then about us as children of God groaning. So when the Holy Spirit groans in prayer, it's the Spirit empathizing with us. It's the Holy Spirit interceding for us. And then it says in verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now if the Holy Spirit knows what God the Father wants for you and he prays for that, do you think his prayers get answered? If one person of the, the, the Godhead prays to the other person of the Godhead, I think they know he knows what to pray for and what God wants to accomplish. The Holy Spirit knows what God the Father wants for you, and he asks God to do the thing he knows he wants to do. I don't think we will understand until we get to heaven just how much of what happens in our lives was a direct result of the Holy Spirit praying for us. But it's good to know. So if our biggest problem in prayer is knowing God's will, the Holy Spirit always knows God's will. So you have a prayer partner praying for you, praying God's perfect will for you all the time. We have the perfect prayer partner in our own heart. Well, the verse that follows is among the best-known, best-loved verses in all the Bible. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we know, not guess, not we think, but we know that all things, not just some things or even most things, but all things work together, all these various threads in our lives that appear disconnected, they're actually connected. And God is working them together for good not for bad. Now, there are things in our lives right now that we could point to and say, well, that's bad. That's not good. This happened, and then that happened. These are bad things that have happened to me. And in a relative sense, that, that may be true. But in the ultimate sense, all things work together for good to those who love God. And if you have given your life to Christ, that's you. That's us. To those who are the called according to his purpose, that's us. So that's what God is doing. Continuing, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we go from one of the best-known, uh, best-loved verses in the Bible to some of the most controversial. Right here, just one 
verse later. Verse 29, notice it says, whom he foreknew. To foreknow means to know beforehand. We know that God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. What does God know? Everything. There are no surprises to God. He knows everything, including those who will choose to follow Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, it says that we've been chosen, or we have been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this choosing on God's part has something to do with his foreknowledge. But Christians have honest disagreements about exactly how that happens, how that works. And a big part of the problem is that we think in such a linear way. I mean, even earlier, just the way I talked about justification and then sanctification and then glorification, I presented that in a chronological timeline according to the way you and I experience those things in time. Because that's how we experience them, in time. God's outside of time. And we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. But he's outside of time. And that's why we sometimes say that from the Father's perspective, we were saved when he chose us. From the Son's perspective, we were saved when he died for us. And from the Holy Spirit's perspective, we were saved when we accepted Christ, when we chose him. The reality is that we chose only to discover we were chosen. And it would be a mistake for us to think that we choose, but God doesn't, that he has no say in the whole thing. God chose for us to choose. Let me say that again. God chose for us to choose in a way that when we do, our, our exercise of responsibility in no way takes away from his exercise of sovereignty. He is still sovereign. Okay, what, is all, what, is the, what difference does all this make? What difference does election make? Well, for everyone who didn't have a date to the prom, everyone who auditioned but didn't get the part, everyone who interviewed for a job but didn't get the job, everyone who tried out for the team but didn't make it, everyone who maybe was abandoned by a parent or deserted by a spouse, God chose you. He chose you. You are chosen. You are loved by God. Well, then verse, verse 29, he also predestined. So where to foreknow means to know beforehand, to predestine means to decide beforehand. And what did God decide? He decided that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God decided. That's what he predestined for each and every believer, that we be conformed to the image of his son. And this is a process that goes that God does with our cooperation. We have a part in this. It's not something he forces upon us. Our participation is critical in his eternal plan. Now, this word predestined, it appears twice in our text there in verse 29 and in verse 30. It is never used in scripture to describe people who are not followers of Christ, which what some people call double predestination, or, or it's never presented in the negative as if someone's predestined to not be a follower of Christ. It's always presented in the positive. So we come to verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. We were called when we heard the message of Jesus. It says, whom he called, these he also justified. 
We were justified when we trusted Jesus to forgive us and to lead us. And whom he justified, these he also glorified, and we will be glorified with Jesus in eternity. But the interesting, the interesting thing is that if we're not glorified yet, why does Paul present this in the past tense? He says in the past tense because with, with God, it's as good as done. It's a done deal. If God says you are going to be glorified, you are going to be glorified. I will be glorified because he said so. God didn't begin a work in the Romans just to abandon them in the midst of their suffering. And God didn't begin a work in you just to abandon you in the midst of your suffering and what you're going through. And by the Holy Spirit, you are enabled to live as an overcomer in Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are overcomers as we endure suffering in the hope of future glory. So that's the, the first point, living as an overcomer. But life in the Spirit also means living as a conqueror. Now the emphasis in this final section, verses 31 through 39, it's on the security of the believer. We don't need to fear the, the past, the present, or the future because we are secure in the love of Christ. And any fear of separation that we might have, it can be conquered because we are secure. That's what he's presenting to us. And Paul presents five arguments that prove that there's no separation between the believer and the Lord. And he gives it in five rhetorical questions that declare that we are more than conquerors. And his first argument declaration is that God is for us. In verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to answer that out loud. Who can be against us? No one. Nobody. If, if all we had in the book of Romans were the first few chapters, we might think that God is against us. If you just stopped at you know, verse, the first three chapters, but in showing us the links that God went to to save us from his wrath and to equip us for victory over sin and death, who can doubt that God is for us? And despite the suffering we may face as Christians, if God is for us, what does it matter if others are against us? If God is for us. God is for us. If you are in Jesus Christ, God is for you. So that's the first thing. The second Christ died for us. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I ask again, answer that out loud. How, how will he, uh, he's not with him who also freely give us all things? He will give us all things. If the father already gave the ultimate gift, giving his own son, Everything else is a smaller gift that he gives us. And if he can do the big thing, he can do the little thing, anything else. He will give us all things freely. If God gave us his own son, there's nothing that you need that he wants you to have that he won't give you. So that's the second thing. Third, God has justified us. We see that in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now the devil, the name the devil, means accuser. 
he accuses us to God. Now, when the devil talks to me about God, he tells lies. But when he talks to God about me, he doesn't have to lie. He tells the truth. I hate to admit that. But I'm sure I give him plenty of ammunition against me, and you do too. We give the accuser plenty of things to tell God that are absolutely true about us. But the only one who can, who can condemn us for those things is the one who justifies us. So we are secure from every charge against us. If we are declared not guilty by the highest judge, who can bring an additional charge? Again, again answer that out loud. Who can do that? Who can bring a charge against us? No one. No one. Well, how did God do that? That's the fourth thing. Christ intercedes for us. Verse 34. Who is he who condemns us? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, back in verse 1 of this chapter, we read that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we come back to it here as we read about Jesus, about his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, but also his intercession. Because not only is the indwelling Holy Spirit praying for us, but the Son in heaven is also praying for us. The only one who could condemn us, Jesus, he won't. He won't condemn us because he paid for it. And if Jesus himself is our advocate, then who can condemn us? I'll answer that out loud. Who can condemn us? No one. That leads to the fifth thing. He says, he declares, Christ loves us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So tribulation, that's those things that are happening to us from the outside. Distress is the way we react to tribulation from, from the inside, how we react to it. Persecution, it, it's those problem people in our lives. Famine and nakedness. Think about the economic hardships we go through in, in different times. Or and economic hardships that people are facing even now. People who have lost their jobs or they're worried about losing their jobs. There are people all over the country right now who are losing their homes or they will be losing their homes. There are difficult, these are difficult times. And you may have very valid concerns about what's going to happen for you financially over the next year over what's to come, especially as people are talking about inflation and prices going up and debt, and then we're going to pile more debt on it. Uh, there's economic uncertainty for sure. But the Bible anticipated all this. And he talks about it here, famine, nakedness. And then peril and sword. We think about danger. We think about the people who have sinned against us, people who have hurt us, whether it's physically or emotionally those things that come against us. All of those things taken together, none of those things can separate us from God's love for us or from his eternal plan for us. 
Shall these, separate, shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? Answer out loud. How about louder? <laughs> no. Say it loud. No. These will not separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what the circumstance, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. How, how is it that the Christian is more than a conqueror? I love the way David Gusick puts it. He, he says, it's because you have greater power, you have the power of Jesus. It's because you have a greater motive, the glory of Jesus. You have a greater victory, losing nothing in the battle. You have a greater love, conquering enemies with love and converting persecutors with patience. No matter what you're facing, no one can separate you from the love of God, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Human love will fail you. Human beings will fail you. We will fail other people, but God will never fail us. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our relationship with him will never fail. We have that security. So Romans 8, it begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. Any fear of separation that we have, it can be conquered because we are secure. So by the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to live as a conqueror. And as overcomers and conquerors, we are free to become all that God has created us to be because the Holy Spirit himself gives us the power to live this new kind of life. And no matter what happens to us or what people do to us, no matter how good things go or how bad things go, you are right in the center of God's love for you. That's a good place to be. It's a great place to be. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.